You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Success. So I I raised the thing and it didn't fall apart. That's like... Step one, morning's off to a good start. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm, I'm Nick. If we don't know each other, I'm the pastor here in Alani Life. Uh, welcome, if you're new, and welcome all of you. We're, we're back together again after break. Uh, now is a time in our service where we get to do a little Bible study together, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually really excited about it. This is one of my favorite parts of our week. Well, it's good to be back together again. I don't know how many of you uh, have ever been on campus over breaks. It's just weird. There's all these buildings, there's all this space, and no one in it. So it's good to see faces, it's good to see students and buses and everything going again. Let's let's do a little bit of uh, interaction here. So raise your hand if you think you had the most fun over break. See, a couple hands went up right away. Let's let's see, who's this back? Is that Sarah or Suzanne? Okay. What what'd you do over break? What was so fun? Took a trip to Ohio and turned 20. Okay, that's pretty good. I mean, and you went to Passion. Okay, all right. All right, it's getting better. Anything else? I mean, <laughs> okay, well, happy late birthday. We got one more. What, how about over here? John. Okay, yeah. Oh, you turned 21. Okay. All right. Well, I turned 37, so... Uh, that happened too. So happy birthday to you guys all. You know, and um, well, uh, my, my son's not here. He's back in kids' company. Some of you know Nathan, my little boy. Uh, he would disagree with all of us if we were uh, in the room. He would say he had the most fun, and here's why. See, over break, <laughs> uh, Amy's family, my wife, we gathered in Orlando at her brother's house for a bit, and while we were there, we spent about a half a day going down to Disney. Now, he's two, and he can't do much at the Disney parks, right? So we, did, we, we went to the Magic Kingdom, and we rode the monorail for free, and the parking lot tram, which was his favorite part. Uh, he was just, it blew his mind, right? And then we went to, uh, to Disney Springs, which is also free to walk around, and he played at Legoland for... He probably would have done that for the whole week if we let him, all right? And then, and then he got to meet Mickey and Goofy, which, as you can see, he was very excited about. So that's our sweet little boy. Uh, He had a ton of fun. I think it blew his mind. This was more than enough Disney than he could really handle. I mean, let's be honest. I'm an adult, and it blows my mind, right? The place is magical. It's pretty great. Um, Well, so shameless family pictures, all that stuff aside, I just love to take the opportunity to share a little bit about my break and my son. Uh, He's such a joy in my life. Well, today... Today we begin a five-week series covering the book of Judges. Maybe you've seen this in the lifeline or in the the slide we've had up. This book, it's 21 chapters of historic narrative that we find in the Old Testament. Now, if you've never read it before, I urge you, go ahead and do that now. Follow along with us, read read the book. Uh, It's great. But there's stories in here that each week that might make you gasp. They might make you think at least, that's really in the Bible? Wow. Uh, like here, here's some examples of some summaries, right? An obese king gets stabbed through the middle, right? A woman drives a tent stake through a man's temple into the ground to kill him. Hundreds of people are slaughtered when a weak man loses his temper. And that's a leader of God's people. A leader sacrifices his daughter because he thinks that's what God would want him to do. Right? An immensely strong man 
kills a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. And this last one, it's horrific. A woman is carved into pieces and sent to the tribes of Israel to show how far they have fallen. This book, it's rated R. Some commentaries, some theologians, they've said this is a graphic story. This is rated R. I think it's a fair statement. And if you've read it, you, might, you probably agree. So while this book is kind of all over the place and it's very graphic, it's a tragedy of God's people sliding further and further from him, it's a place where his mercy shines brightly. The book of Judges, it shows us God's people in a downward spiral away from him and into chaos. That throughout, God listens to his people. He listens for their cry of help and he inter- for help and he intervenes. In the chaos, God brings deliverance. The book of Judges, it reveals God's mercy in chaos. That's something we all long for. And if you haven't, you will. Trust me, life will become chaos at some point. It will be crazy one day, and you will long for God's mercy. You will cry out to him. And so if you remember nothing else from these five weeks, this entire sermon series, I want you to remember that God longs to be merciful to us in the chaos. The book of Judges shows us that over and over again. And so when life is chaotic, when we feel oppressed or weighed down by the brokenness of our lives or the world around us, we can cry out to God and he longs to be merciful to us. He longs to have compassion and deliver us from that. And that's what we're going to see. Well, as we get started with this series, I want us to, to have a good background and understanding of, of where this book is, where it fits, and some, some helpful handholds or information. So uh, maybe a little bit different than most weeks, we're going to do more of an in-depth Bible study to start out this morning, right? Less, less sermon preachy, a little bit more Bible study. So, so stick with me, take notes if you need to. I've tried to give you visuals and ways that I'm thinking about this and framing things in as best I can. I think this is really going to help you over these next five weeks. So let's start with some background. God's people, the narrative of God, right? God, he calls to Abraham and he promises to make him a great nation, to to make him into a great people that have a place, a land that they call their own, and a people that would live with his presence, that would live with him as their God. Now, Abraham, he goes on, he has a son, Isaac, and the promise continues through him and God works to bring about Uh, to continue to fulfill that. Isaac, he has a son, Jacob, and the promise continues on through that line. And Jacob, he has a bunch of sons, and we've talked about one of those specific, Joseph, last semester. And Joseph, he becomes the top dog in, in Egypt, right? And when there's a regional famine, the whole family moves down to Egypt to be saved from the famine. Now, there's one problem. That's not the land God promised his people. And so how is this promise gonna come about? Right? And so generations pass, and God's people end up being slaves in Egypt. It's about 200 years or so that they are, they are enslaved in Egypt, and they cry out to God from under their oppressors. And he hears their voice. He has compassion. And he raises up Moses, a deliverer, a rescuer, to lead them out of slavery and into the promised land. Now, they take a very circuitous route. If you know the story, you know that's true. And, uh, and the land, and they do that because they've been unfaithful, and so God has them wander and learn how to be his people. Forty years pass, and they learn a lot about God. They get the law, and they, 
set up the tabernacle, which is God's tent that li- where he lives among them. They wander the wilderness. And then, finally, under the command of Joshua, they begin to take the land that God promised. They begin to be the people in the land. The land is Canaan. And, and here's the thing, though. As they take the land, God instructs them that they need to completely remove the people that are in there. They need to wipe them out, get rid of their temples, get rid of their, their gods they're worshiping, wipe the land clean. Don't make covenants with them. Don't intermarry. Don't become like the people. Which, if you've never stopped to think about, the question should be raised, if you haven't or if someone hasn't raised it to you, isn't this a bit much? Why do these people have to be killed? Why do they have to be removed completely? Couldn't there be a peaceable solution? Couldn't we live together? Couldn't they, you know, find some way to you do you and I do me? Well, well, God says no. And there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. One reason is because God's relationship with his people, it's like a marriage covenant. That's the way God speaks about it with his people. And in a marriage, there's not room for another spouse. If you're married, you know this, and you probably intuitively know this. It's just husband and wife. I think about it. If, if I were to invite a former girlfriend to live with Amy and I, she would have some major objections, and rightfully so. It doesn't work, right? There's not room for another person. I've agreed just her and I for the rest of our lives. That's the covenant we have made. That's the covenant God has made with his people. You shall have no other gods before me. And God, he goes on, he describes himself in the Ten Commandments as a jealous God because a loving God doesn't allow for unfaithfulness without heartache and pain. That's what a jealous God means. There's no room for another spouse in the relationship. It's him and only him. So removing these Canaanites, the people that were living in the land, it's a safeguard for his people so that they don't fall into the temptation to worship these other gods or become like uh, the other people in their worship. Now another reason for why uh, the Canaanites had to be removed from the land is because God has chosen Israel, his people, to be his wrath and his judgment against the Canaanites for their wickedness. In Deuteronomy, God tells us that he is warning the Israelites that when they take the land, it's not because they were so great or so righteous. No, it's God's work for a reason. Here's here's what he says. Not because of your righteousness or your uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. You are a stubborn people, which I love that. It ends that way, right? I think we're all a stubborn people, by the way. I think that's the nature of humanity stuck in our ways. And so these Canaanites, these people that were living in the land, they were doing horrific and evil things. God describes them as wicked. They were building temples to their god, Baal and Ashereth, and stocking them with temple prostitutes. And part of their worship was to sleep with a prostitute to encourage Ashereth, the female god, to sleep with Baal, the male god, so that they would have a fertile harvest. Now, that's not necessarily super evil. It's just 
twisted and messed up, right? Uh, the things that they were doing that were actually pretty evil, is they were sacrificing their children to these gods, their own children. They were burning children alive to the god, to the god Molech. They were spilling human blood to worship Chemosh. They were, they were killing individuals in God's image to worship these false gods. And God says it's wicked and it needs to stop. And God, so he wanted the Israelites to remove these people from the land, not to allow them to remain and tempt his people to become like them, to tempt them to be unfaithful or to tempt them to become wicked. Okay, so that's, that's background, right? So that's, that's what we know where we're at as they're taking the land and why. So let's talk about this book, right? Let's, let's get into the book. I'm excited about that part. Uh, this historic narrative, it takes place on the, over the course of about 150 years. It involves 13 different judges, and some of them are real prominent, and you've probably heard of them before. Others are barely mentioned. We have a few verses uh, at best. So, so what is a judge? It's, it's, we said where there's 13 of these, the book is named after it. What is a judge? When we hear that term, right, we think of somebody with robes and a gavel sitting behind a desk, proceeding over a courtroom, or presiding over a courtroom. And that's not what's in view here. That's not what, that, uh, what we should be thinking about. Now, that's an accurate translation of what the Hebrew word that's used for these people are, but it's much wider than that. It's, uh, it, you can think of it in terms of um, an individual that's a leader of the people who... Uh, He's, he's part military commander, or she is part military commander, uh, able to, to get people to follow, to inspire and lead them. They're deliverers. That's a good, good word for us to think about. Deliverers, they deliver God's people. They bring forth God's people. They're going to bring relief from the oppression that uh, the people are under, and it's God's doing. Now, these judges, they, they will operate in, in sort of regions, but the, the text will call it all of Israel. They'll say Israel, but, but it, it means tribes or, or regional areas of, of the land. It's not necessarily all over all of Israel. It's not unified quite yet. It's still 12 individual tribes. Now, now let, me, let me back up real quick. I, I've referred often to this book already a, a couple of times as historic narrative. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is historic narrative means it's a true story. It's a story from history that we read. But here's the thing about narrative in the Bible, or historic narrative when we read it in the Bible. The book of Acts is this way, by the way. When we read it, we can see all kinds of things happening that aren't necessarily things that God condones or commands, yet God brings about his purposes through them. That can be confusing for us. Because while we read this book of Judges, we're going to see people who are fallen, broken, twisted and corrupt in different ways, doing evil things or unethical things. Yet God will redeem those purposes. He will use them to bring about what he ultimately desired, delivering his people from their oppressors. And so narrative can be difficult for us in Scripture. It can leave us with questions. And so we have to consult the rest of Scripture and we have to pray and we have to discern. Are we supposed to murder kings to get, on, get, get them off our back? When, when God calls us to do something, should we test him multiple times just to, to make sure it's good? Right? Should we tie torches 
to the tails of foxes and let them burn down cities? Is that what God wants us to do? Is that godly living? These are some of the questions you might ask as you're reading. All right, let's, let's, jump, back on, let's jump back on track. So um, the structure of this book, I think it's really helpful to think about the structure of books when you're studying in a, a whole one. So, so let me give you, I think it's pretty straightforward, and if you read through the book, you'll start to see this emerge fairly quickly. The opening two chapters, they tell us of the continued conquest. Joshua, we began it as they, as they started, and you can read that in the previous book, and the conquest continues in chapter one. And, and initially, it's going well. The, the people, they're taking the land, and they're doing as God told them. They're, they're uh, removing the Canaanites completely. They're not settling down with them and making covenants. And then it kind of takes a turn in the middle of the chapter, and we find they can't fully remove the people, so now they're starting to make agreements with them. Right? And then by the end of the chapter, it's like full-on, I call it anti-conquest. Like Israel is going into battle and they're getting chased the other direction and out of the land. Like it's, it's not going the way that you would expect. Right? These people aren't taking the land, they're leaving the land by the end of the chapter. Chapter 2, it kind of turns into, uh, we, we find out some of why it's going that direction. The people have been unfaithful to God. Time has passed, and they've, they've sort of forgotten God, and they've started to do their own thing. They've started to intermarry with these people. They've started to make covenants with them, and they've started to become like them. And so the angel of the Lord comes and, and speaks for God, and he calls them on their disobedience. And so this is what we read in chapter 2. This is the angel of the Lord, the voice of God coming to them. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be, become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall become a snare to you. Now, now it, get, it gets worse, right? As we keep reading in the chapter, we're going to see that the generations pass and, and new ones rise up, and, and they're, they're not only disobeying God in, in these ways, now, now they are worshiping the Canaanite gods. They're completely abandoning God and starting to worship other gods. They're becoming wicked like the people God told them to remove and not be like. So let's read. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the balls. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the balls and the ashtoreth, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. It's because of their unfaithfulness, because they didn't hold up their end of the covenant. God allows them to be overrun and oppressed by the nations around them. He allows them to be oppressed. Yet he remains faithful to his end of the bargain. He, be, he remains their God, compassionately listening and waiting for their cries for help, waiting for them to turn back to him and worship him as their God, just as he was in Egypt, waiting to rescue them. And so, the people, they're going to eventually cry out. God will raise up a deliverer, a judge, that will save the people, 
and there will be peace in the land again, and they will be his people. And that will last generally for as long as the judge is around until he dies, and the people will turn back. And a new generation will forget about God and become more corrupt than even the previous one, which will lead God to allow another oppressor to come in and, and overrun them. And the people will cry out, and God will raise up, and the cycle will continue over and over and over again, each time as the people get further and further away from God. It's, this is the downward spiral of judges. This is the, the descent of God's people into uh, being more and more wicked like the people God told them not to be. So let's, let's read the text. Uh, it describes this downward spiral here. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the ways in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them for the hand, from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so that's the downward spiral through the book of Judges into chaos. We'll see this cycle each week as we look at the, a story of a different judge uh, Israel will forsake God. They will be oppressed by a different people group. They will cry out to God eventually. God will hear them. He will have compassion and raise up a deliverer, a judge to save them. Each week, as we meet a new judge, we'll see that they too are getting further and further from God, just like the rest of Israel. The judge's actions, they will become more and more questionable, more graphic, their flaws and shortcomings will become more and more obvious. From chapter 3 to chapter 16, the judges and the Israelites will look more and more like the Canaanites they were supposed to remove from the land, not like God's people, not like a light to the nations. And finally, as we reach the end of the book in several weeks, we'll see the final four chapters that are utter and horrific darkness and chaos in Israel. There's a repeated phrase that will begin in, the, in these four chapters, and, and it's a summary of the book, a summary statement of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which is terrifying when you stop and think about it. When everyone does what is right in his own eyes, anything goes. What's right to me when I live my truth could, could easily be, I'm bigger than you, so I take what I want from you. Or the people I don't like don't deserve to live, so, so let's make that so. Which is exactly what happens in the last four chapters. We end, the book ends with two jaw-dropping stories. One tells of a man being robbed and a city being sacked and burned simply because the raiding party could. That's, that's the beginning of the end. And then finally, in a, in, a, in a terrible, horrific story, we hear of a, of a priest and his concubine, which 
hold the phone. Why does a priest have a concubine, right? Like, because everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, and it seems right to him, so why not, right? In those days, Israel had no king. And this priest and his concubine, they are traveling, and they stop over, and they decide, you know what, it's best while we're traveling, let's stay with Israel, because that's the right thing to do. So they stay in a town of the tribe of Benjamin. And one thing leads to another, and the story's dark and and sad, and, and his concubine is raped to death. And the priest decides in the morning to carve up her body and send it to the 12 tribes of Israel to show what has happened. It's grotesque. It's horrible. And Israel, they are outraged, and they decide, we need to eradicate Benjamin. And so they go to war against the tribe. So Israel now, God's people, is in civil war. And after they have gone to war with this tribe, they decide, oh, we have eliminated a tribe of Israel. This is horrible. Let's rectify that situation. Let's fix it. Let's go kidnap a bunch of women and bring it to the remnant of this tribe and force them to be married so that the tribe can continue on, right? This is their solution to the chaos that they've found themselves in. We gasp as we read it. It's horrible. It's dark. It's wicked. God's people look no different than the people they were supposed to remove from the land. Because in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when everyone does what is right in his own eyes, it's complete chaos. Okay, so that's the framework of the book. That's, that's where we're going. Let's, let's dive in and see uh, some, some quick examples of, of a judge and what a judge is and does. So the very first judge we meet, he's more of an archetype for us. First judge, his name is Othniel, and he serves as sort of the, the template. And there's just a handful of verses. We don't know much about him. We don't know much about, like, you know, his judgeship. We just, he sets the model for us, and it's the very first one. So, so we're going to see the cycle that's going to repeat each week. So read with me. This is Judges chapter 3. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Kanzar. Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim, so the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenzar, died. So that's our cycle. They forgot their God, and they served other gods, the Baal and the Ashtoreth. Then the Lord... He gives them over to an oppressor, Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, which, tangent, is a very hilarious name. <laughs> it literally means Cushan of double wickedness. It's, it's like, it's a silly nickname they've given him. It's not his real name. It's just his name's Cushan, and they've tacked on this thing to describe him. It's like, it's like in World War II when people called Mussolini mean, meanie Mussolini, or, or in modern days when people call Kim Jong-un Kim, Jong, or Kim Fatty III or Fat, 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 right? I mean, like, <laughs> these are funny things, right? They're making fun of dicta, oppressors, dictators. 
Um, so that's literally what's happening. These are what the Israelites are doing. They're making fun of this guy who's an oppressor. It's hilarious. I think it is. Uh, I think the author of Judges, I think he gets it. And that's why he uses the name so much, right? We said it a whole bunch of times in those verses. Anyway, so, so, there's this, so they forsake God. There's an oppressor. Now the people, they cry out. And so uh, Cushan, he's been ruling over eight years, and the people that cry out to the Lord, he hears them and he has compassion, right? He says, that's, he says he hears them and he raises up a deliverer. He raises up Othniel from Caleb's family line, and the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. God blesses him. He causes him to succeed, and the people, they follow him. He goes to war with Cushan, and God gives him victory, and there's rest and peace in the land. They are God's people for 40 years and then Othniel dies. And the cycle starts over. That's the full cycle. As we move through the book of Judges, each week when we encounter a new judge, you're going to see that cycle. Throughout the book, the, the stories of the judges, they're going to get more verbose, they're going to get more detailed, more grotesque, but the cycle will remain the same. And all throughout, we're going to see that God is the one that enables the victory that brings about the rescue. It's God's compassion and God's mercy in the, in the front and center as the people are rescued. Okay, so let's look at one of my favorite judges. This is our first real judge that follows the cycle. This is one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. Uh, when, I, when I first read this when I was like 15 or 16, I thought it was hilarious. Uh, I, hope, I hope you find it funny too. Uh, there's still, even today, as I was preparing for this, I scratched my head. I'm like, that's really in the Bible? Really, this story? So the story is Ehud. If you've, if you've never read it, uh, the book of Judges, uh, go do it. This is a good place to start. Um, but everything holds true, right? That cycle we, we outlined, the, uh, the people um, crying out to God. Okay, so in this story, be warned, there are graphic descriptions, there's violence, there's murder, uh, and there's some comical aspects. I think a lot of them. Okay, so first... We'll see how the people of Israel, in this case, just predominantly the tribes of Benjamin and Ephraim, did evil against the Lord, and God let them be overrun by a new oppressor, right? That's the beginning of the cycle. So Judges 3. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went to, and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho, if you're wondering, um, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. <clears throat> so these tribes of Israel, Benjamin and Ephraim, they have turned from God, and now they are being ruled by a Moabite king named Eglon. 18 years pass, and we're told the people cry out to God. He hears them, and in his kindness and mercy, he raises up a deliverer. So let's keep reading and see where the story goes. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him <laughs> by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So Ehud, he's our newest judge, right? He's newest on the scene. And there's an interesting detail. He's left-handed, which is odd, right? I mean, just that it just comes out and says that. Now, that plays, that plays a part later, and, and you need to remember that, right? Uh, but it's also a very humorous bit, again, too, here. It's, I find it hilarious. So the, Ehud is from the tribe Benjamin, which literally means son of my right hand. 
Okay? So if you are a Hebrew reading the text, the way that you just met Ehud is, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, from the tribe of son of my right hand, who is a left-handed man. And it just makes me smile. It makes me laugh. I mean, maybe that's just pastor humor, but I think some of you get it too. It's just comical. So this left-handed guy, right, he makes a sword for himself, which would have been illegal, right? He's, they're an oppressed people. So he makes a sword for himself, and we're told it's about 18 inches long. And that's an important uh, detail because it's, it's long enough to be dangerous, but small enough to be concealed, which is what's going to happen. And that's what he does. He conceals the sword, and he goes to pay the owed tribute to King Eglon. Let's pick this story back up. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. <laughs> and when Eglon had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, he is Eglon, silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him, and he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. You see where this is going? Okay. Okay, you're tracking, right? Ehud has a concealed sword and is presenting a tribute to, the, to Eglon the king, right? The narrator goes out of his way to tell us that Eglon is a very fat man, which is another weird detail, right? It's not often when you're reading where they just, we just stop and we hear about somebody's physical description, in particular their weight. But Ehud, he gives the fat king a tribute, and then he tells him he has a secret message for him, right? That's what he said. Now, apparently, not only was Eglon very large, he's a little bit dim, right? Because he's so excited about this secret message that he sends his guards and everyone away. He leaves himself and Ehud and a concealed knife or sword in his chambers. They're alone in his chambers. The people he's oppressed with a concealed sword. You can see where this is headed. I have a message from God for you, said Ehud. And the king arose from his seat. I get a sense that took some work. It's dramatic, right? <laughs> Ehud. <laughs> that was one of my favorite commentators pointed that out. Um, <laughs> sorry. So Ehud reached to his, with his left hand, right? He's a left-handed man. And he took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade. <laughs> And he did not pull out the sword out from his belly, and the dung came out. That's the end of the sword. Then Ehud went out onto the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And there it is, right? All those odd details, they line up. We get why they were there. Ehud grabs the concealed sword. He drives it through the stomach of Eglon so powerfully that the blubber covers back over it and swallows the handle of the blade. It's sticking out his back, and the king is dead. Ehud escapes through the porch, and he makes sure the doors are locked to make sure he has enough time to make his getaway. So let's, let's keep reading the story here. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. They think he's going to the bathroom. And they waited till it was embarrassed and embarrassing. <laughs> But when he still did not open the doors to the roof chamber, they took the key and opened the door, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. 
And so the trap was set and sprung. The clever Ehud is making a clean getaway while the duped servants assume their king is going to the bathroom. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait until it would have been awkward. And so they decide, someone needs to check on this guy, right? He, he might need some help. And, and their delay, it allows Ehud to make a clean getaway and make a good escape. And he makes it all the way to the hill country of Ephraim to call his fellow Israelites to battle to go up against their new, newly dethroned oppressor, the kingless oppressors. And so let's read. Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. They're at peace. They're God's people again. The Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. I love that. Ehud, he's just slain Eglon, the king. And throughout the story, he still points to God, not himself, as the one who brought the victory. The Lord has given your enemies into your hand. He's not boasting about what he has just done. He's not laughing and telling his friends and his brothers, Israelites, what has happened. No, he's calling God's people, rise, God is on the move, let's go with him. God blessed him. He caused his plans to succeed and, to, and, and his people to be rescued. The plans of Ehud are that. They were his plans, they were his scheme, his idea of how to make it happen. God redeems them. God brings glory and victory to himself as he rescues his people, as he frees them from their oppressor. So even amidst questionable actions and ethics, deception and murder, God can bring about his purposes. It doesn't mean he condones or commands or encourages us to take part in those, those things, but it does mean that God can redeem them. It's not, this story is not a prescription for godly living. It's not saying become left-handed, conceal you, you know, a sword, and, and take action into your own hands. The story of Ehud, though, it reminds us that God is merciful and hears our cries. In the chaos of life, when we question our circumstances, and if this is what God intended for us, he hears our cries and delivers us. Whatever circumstances you currently face or have in the past, whatever is causing disarray in your life, our compassionate God is waiting to hear your cry and extend mercy. It might take 18 years of chaos and misery before the Eglon in your life is slain. It might be hundreds of years enslaved in Egypt crying out to God before his mercy is realized or seen. Call out to God in chaos, and he will be merciful. I know this to be deeply true in my life. I know this because when I realized life was chaos and my sin was too much, that there was nothing I could do to overcome that oppressive overlord sin in my life, Nothing I could do to fix my separation from God. When I cried out to God, he raised up a deliverer. 
himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, my rescue, my judge, my deliverer. He is the one that slayed the ultimate oppressor once and for all. He is the one that laid my sin to rest and set me free. When humanity, when all of us had gone astray, when Adam and Eve were unfaithful, sin entered the world and became our oppressor. But from that very moment, God began the work. He began the work of redeeming all of creation. He set into motion his plan, his ultimate plan for victory, to deliver and set us free once again. The mercy of God in the chaos of fallen creation, it shines brightest in the ultimate judge, Jesus Christ. All other judges are echoes or shadows of the true deliverer and point us to him. If you, if you are here this morning and you have not cried out to God from the chaos and found rescue in Jesus, I urge you to do so. There is nothing better. Whatever holds you captive, he wants to set you free. Whatever grief or guilt you carry, he wants to unburden you of. Whatever ways you have been unfaithful and served other gods, he wants you to return and allow him to be your king. Would you pray with me?